0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. This is the podcast where I interview really interesting people who've done cool things in their career and are continuing to shake things up and make waves. And We try to come up with ideas of how businesses and individuals can get better. And today, we are going to talk about the difference between investing in your business and spending money And we're also going to talk a little bit about how do you rebuild a business? Because sometimes there are some ups and downs that happen in the corporate world. You might have experienced that during the pandemic. Uh, Some of you might have to rebuild. I know I've had to go through that. And today we've got somebody on the podcast who has done that several times. But first, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode, so this episode is brought to you by Stanton Chase International, one of the leading global executive search firms serving as trusted advisors to help companies build their trusted leadership teams. Go visit stantonchase.com. All right, today I am joined by Bob Pike, and Bob helps people unlock learning and unleash, unleash their performance. Now, people are told to learn but they're rarely taught to learn. And that's something that's really important to Bob. He built a multi-million dollar thriving training and consulting business, which he has sold, but he continues to do this work because he cares so passionately about it. Hey, Bob Pike, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level.
1: Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad to have you. So, Bob, give us I'll a try little... To match your, I'll try to match your energy level.
0: <laughs> yeah, some people say that's hard to do, but I, I, th- I think you can manage that, Bob. So, so tell us a little bit about your background. When did you start your first business? How did you grow the business that, that I mentioned in the introduction? Give us, give us your history.
1: Well, um, I went to the Naval Academy back in the 60s. And then after two years, I resigned, went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and became a pastor. And as a pastor, I made $60 a month. And I actually signed every check I ever got, put it back in the offering plate because the church couldn't even afford that. So as a result, I had to work another job. And I was I was going deeper and deeper in debt. And uh, the scripture says you're to have a good report with people, those within the church, those without when you're not paying your bills, you don't have a very good report. And so a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you? I mean, you're you know, you're a great teacher. Uh yeah, why don't you come work at the company that I'm at? Uh, you know, you, you sell a program and then you get to be the uh, trainer for it. And uh, so I'd always heard that sales was where you could make as much as you want, especially commission. And uh, so I joined and, and uh, in my first six months, I made $150 in commissions. <laughs> um we had 400 salespeople in the company. I was number 400 by a long margin, and uh, and it wasn't that I didn't know the stuff because I mean, uh, we would do sales training once a month. I would drive 18 hours from Chicago to Denver, and I I would need to, they'd have these little contests after each uh, class, and whoever performed the skill best got 10 bucks, and I needed that 10 bucks so. I, I win everything. And I was, I was like 24 and everybody else was in their thirties. Um, but as a pastor, you give things away and, uh, and, and you never force them on people. So if I say, hey, Tom, can I pray for you? And you go, no, thanks. I don't say, I don't try to close you four more times on let me pray. Uh, you know, instead I just say, God bless you. Go on my way. Well, In our business, uh, we knew statistically that the average sale would come on the fifth close. And uh, so uh, I was afraid of rejection. So I would call. I was great at getting appointments by phone. Then I'd cancel my appointments because if you didn't see me, you couldn't reject me. (laughs) And after six months, I got fed up with my behavior. And I said, either I've got to change and admit I'm not cut out for this, or I've got to do some. I've got. To, I've got. I've got to do something else. And I didn't like the idea of quitting because uh, up until leaving the Naval Academy, I had been a success at everything. I mean, I was top three in my class. I did well at the Naval Academy. Um, I did well at, at Moody. But when I left the Naval Academy, I spent the next two years explaining to people why I quit. So you can transfer from one college to another, but you leave a service academy where you've been given the golden ticket and you quit. And I thought, man, if I quit on this, maybe I'm developing the habit pattern of being a quitter. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to do everything I can for 30 days. And I used what I call the three V's. First of all, I verbalized, I had goals. And, And my goal was to, Uh, make make 12 presentations a a week and force myself in at least eight of those to close five times, whether it felt good or not. And uh, so that was verbalized and visualized. So before I went into every presentation, I just sat in my car and mentally rehearsed. I share, you ask questions. I deal with the questions close. uh, We're both happy. And uh, then vitalize, and and so again, I was going to do twelve appointments, and you know, actually make that happen. So in that thirty days, uh, and you got to remember, this is like nineteen sixty nine. I made a little over eleven hundred dollars in commissions. Um, Within six months, I was making eight thousand dollars a month in commissions. And, uh, which,
0: which actually in the late sixties, $8,000 a month becomes really big money.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, today it'd be like 30,000 a month. Yeah. And, uh, so I went from 400 number one and I had nine promotions in two years and I was at, at age 25, I was senior vice president of marketing for the, for the company, which was about a $10 million training company. And, uh, so, so what I realized is, so then I thought, no one I ever coach as a salesperson, nobody I ever manage as a salesperson is going to fail because I know every way to fail. I have personally experienced them, and so I can help them avoid it. And so everything went well for about six months, Then I had a guy call up and he said, Bob, I, I, quit. I just can't do this. And I kind of went into a tailspin because this guy had invested $10,000 to be a distributor. And I, and I thought, no, okay, what, what could I have done? Well, you know, we were giving him two days of live training a month. I was doing coaching with him once a week. I even made what we call joint sales calls where I go with and I work with him to make the sale. And so I, I finally thought, you know, I've done everything except sell for him. And uh, so I developed what I called my opportunity response. So my job is to give you an opportunity. And so this would apply anywhere in an organization. So I'm going to teach you to prospect. When I see you've developed 100 prospects, we'll go to the next part. But there are way too many people. Ah, prospects are not that fine. The prospects are anywhere. Let's go to the next thing. And, and a lot of times I would just do it because I wanted to be a nice guy. And I go, you know, but if they if they don't do the first things, then the last things aren't going to make any difference. And so that's really served me well because I'm amazed at how many people um, try to skip steps, uh, either because they don't like it or they don't think they need it. And yet uh, it's it's really important that we that we follow a process. So and. So at what
0: what point did you then start your own business going from running this other company to having your own?
1: Okay. So uh, the company was doing well and, uh, and then uh, two things happened. One, I had a disagreement with the president I'm senior vice president of marketing. And so if I was selling you a distributorship, I would go through every bad thing that could happen as part of the process. And say, okay, Tom, you're going to go home, and you're going to tell your wife you want to do this, and she's going to go, spend what? You know? So, so, Tom, how, how are you going to handle that? You're going to go to your banker, and your banker's going to go, what? And, and so what you've got to decide is, am I going to believe what I've heard here with Bob these three days? Or am I going to believe all of these people that really have no knowledge of the business? And, Tom, the really big thing is you're betting on yourself. It's not even the company. Because anybody can succeed at anything if they want to, if if they're committed to it. So anyway, uh, one of the guys on my team, I I got a call from a woman and she said, you know, um, my husband bought a distributorship two months ago, and he's just died suddenly, and, and I know that there are no refunds, but I'm wondering, could could you make an exception? And. And so I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could do something. And uh, so I went to accounting and they go, well, we don't have any money. And it turned out that what the guy was doing is he would take your deposit. And if you completed the transaction, he would turn it in. And if you didn't, he kept the money. So, so we fired him. And, uh, and, and the president also got on me, well, why are you being so negative? You're bringing up all these problems that may never happen. And I go, we know from experience that they happen all the time. It's rare that somebody goes home and says this to the wife and says, this is the most exciting thing I've ever heard of. I'm on board with you 100%. You know, uh, you know bankers don't open their cash drawers. And you go, oh, well, yeah, you sure 10,000 is enough? Maybe you ought to do like 20, get two of them. <laughs> uh, you know, that that just doesn't happen. And I said, you know, it's I'm, I'm inoculating them. You know, that way when they hear it, they go, oh, you know, Bob talked to me about this. So it's not a big deal. I'll call Bob. We'll talk it through. So anyhow, this guy um, started going around to other distributors that had failed and said, you know, this is terrible. You were really misled. I was misled. And I'm sure you were misled, too. And there ought to be something we could do about it. And, you know, maybe we ought to sue. And so there was a class action lawsuit against the company. And it was at the same time that, uh, that, I, that a guy, uh, uh, named Glenn Turner had a company called Costco and it was a multi-level pyramid scheme. And so the newspapers were painting our company as the same kind of thing. And, uh, so pretty rapidly, our, our sales just went to nothing. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, I, I, need to do, I, I, I need to do something different. And so, the, so I started my own business, but um, I, I didn't have any money. I a matter of fact, when the company went bankrupt, I had $35,000 of company travel on my American Express card that went unreimbursed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had met a guy named john dick and and actually i went to the pastor of my church and i said look here's the situation i I don't have credit matter of fact what i've got is i've got bad credit but i've got this business idea i know i can make it work um i need five thousand dollars and he said you know bob two years ago i would have loaned it to you but you know the church has had these financial problems and i said okay well if anybody comes to mind so he said well There's a guy named John Deck. He's been going to our church about a year. Call him up. Tell him I've never done this before. Probably never do it again, but ask if he'll hear your story. So I went and I talked to him, and and, uh, when I finished, he said, well, you know, Bob, that sounds like a really good idea, but, you know, I don't invest in companies that I don't control. So I'd be willing to loan you whatever amounts needed, but I need to own 51%. And I go, John, I lost everything because I didn't control the business. And so I just can't do that. But thank you. So anyhow, next day, John calls and says, you know, uh, it took guts for you to say no to me. So he said, I'll tell you what, if you can find a bank. Now, here are the two banks that I bank at. You cannot go to them. But uh, if you will find a bank that will loan you the $5,000 with me as the co I will co-sign the loan now, at the time, I thought, you know, he just didn't want to affect his credit. And, I, and, and actually, what I realized later is he wanted me to work for it. <laughs> and if I walked into one of his banks and said that one of your biggest depositors, because he was a multimillionaire, you know, is willing to back me, you know, it would have been a done deal. And so, uh, so I started this business uh, working for a company out of Minneapolis, um, selling a program called Adventures and Attitudes. And they were doing about 4,000 enrollments a year. And in, uh, and, I, and I thought, these people don't know what they have. And in four months, I did 400 enrollments. So I did 10% of their enrollments in four months. And so they said, Bob, would you come to Minneapolis and help build the company? So I became a minor shareholder, and I moved to Minneapolis. And we doubled sales every year for seven years. And when I first came on board, they said, look, we can't pay you what you're worth, but, you know, when the company's profitable, we'll remember. And uh, so we were really profitable. And so I was vice president, uh, the chairman of the board, the president, myself, with the executive committee. I met, uh, we met with them to, you know, it's it's profit sharing time. And they they were splitting about 90,000 in royalties. And they said, you know, we had a really great year. I think what we should do is give ourselves 10% salary bonus. Now, the chairman showed up once a month for a meeting, and you know, made 12,000 a year. The, the president made 90,000 a year, and I was making 40,000 plus whatever commissions uh, outside speaking, that kind of thing I could do. And, uh, and I said, "Well, you know, I, I just don't think that's enough." I traveled 170 days last year. I did 52 three-day seminars. Uh, we'd, we'd, and, and the chairman said something very interesting. He said, "Bob, the larger any company gets, the more, less valuable any one person is." <laughs> and I said, "I said, well, unless that person can develop replicable ideas, in which case the larger the company, the more valuable they are, because the leverage is greater." And, he, and they said, "Well, have you been able to do that?" And so, just off the top of my head, I gave them six ideas that they had to admit it was your idea. And it was worth at least a quarter million dollars annually in revenue. And so then they said, well, you know, that's why we have an executive committee. Let's vote. And so the two of them voted 10% bonus and I voted, I think it should be more. And they said, well, glad we can have this discussion. And I, I was, I was really upset. Uh, I was more than upset. I, I thought words that I know don't, don't speak. <laughs> and, uh, and so a couple of days later, I went into the presence office and I said, You know, I'm giving you six months' notice. Uh, I'm not quitting, but I said, uh, As vice president, my, my financial opportunities are limited. So I'm going to go back into the field and I'm going to build the largest t- instructional team you've ever seen. And so I laid out for them my total plan. And the day I dropped a mailing to 60,000 trainers, offering a program that I was buying from them that I had developed for them. They dropped a mailing to the same 60,000 trainers. Cause I had laid out my plan for them in 20 of the 26 cities. I was going to for 20% less money. And when I can, conf- and when I confronted them, they said, we don't know how this happened. This is total coincidence. And uh, so I was almost out of business before I was in business and, and so I thought, I've got I've got one more shot at doing this, but I need to do something. So again, I am a slow learner. I was doing something somebody else had the possibility of controlling because they owned it and they had a differential margin that I didn't have. And uh, so I had just come on the board of uh, the American Society for Training and Development, the uh, National Board. And in chapters, I was talking about uh, what I called instructor-led participant-centered training, and so I thought I'm going to build a seminar around that, and uh, and I did, and it just resonated with people. You know, they were tired. I mean, PowerPoint wasn't even a thing yet, but they were uh, they they're tired of death by slide. Sure, um, they were. You know, they were tired of the lecture, and uh, and and so. Then that business took off and that that's what I really built for 37 years.
0: Nice. Well, you know, it's its interesting because I think a lot of people who who listen to the show are either in that situation where they're working for some people who don't have their best interest at heart and aren't paying them what they're worth, or they've left to start their own business because they've lived through exactly what you're talking about. Now, what I wanted to talk to you about today, because then you went on for 37 years and, and built this, this training business, one of the things I want to talk to you about today is the difference between investing and spending. And I think a lot of companies, even big companies, don't really draw a line between those two things. So what's your definition of investing and spending?
1: Well, you know, probably the the simplest illustration is to look at um, hard drive storage on laptops. Because my first laptop, I had, uh, it was 48 pounds and it was was what they call portable. Um, But you had to plug it in. And it had 256k of RAM, and you stored everything on floppy drives. And then a year later, they said, Bob, you can get a five-megabyte floppy drive for only a thousand dollars, and it'll replace like a thousand floppy disks. And so I did, and because I thought, well, I'll never fill this up. <laughs> You know, and about a year later, it was filled again, and they said, "Hey, we have a ten megabyte for a thousand dollars." And it, and it seemed like about every year to two years, speed would double, RAM would double, storage would double, and s- somehow it was always a, just a thousand dollars. And and I thought, you know, all you're doing is you're building in a new limit. Now, when when you first get it, you say, "Wow, look at this! It's unlimited." It's not it's a new limit. Now it's a limit that you can't see the end of at the moment, but it's there. Now, when you invest in people, um, you, you really have an unlimited potential for growth and return on an investment. So, um, I had a situation where I had a general manager keeping a double set of books and, uh, I thought I thought we had a huge profit, and so I paid him a bonus early at his request, and I paid four hundred one k to everybody, and and then suddenly my controller says, uh, "Bob, we we didn't make a million dollars last year; we lost four hundred thousand dollars, and we're almost bankrupt." And uh, and so everybody just said, you know, "Sell." So my wife said, "Look, you know, you're like." So 62 years old, maybe we ought to just walk away from this and keep what we've got. And so I, I got a group of uh, advisors. So one had done the turnaround for Toro and the, uh, another had done the turnaround for rollerblades. Um, Another was a forensic accountant because I was trying to figure out what, what had happened. And so they said, you know, this is a brand worth keeping. And uh, so Um, but you're going to have to put this much money in. So I went to my wife and I said, you know, I'm going to have to pull out like 80% of my 401k to do this. And, and she said, well, do you think it's worth doing? And I said, well, you know, I always believe I'm betting on myself, you know, but they said it's a brand worth saving and I believe God's not done with me yet. And, uh, you know, but I would suggest you talk to them. So with, with her concurrence, uh, we made the investment. Well, I went to the employees and we were at about $4 million at the time. And uh, the general manager really created a culture of entitlement. I mean, someone would go to a dentist appointment, and not come back for the rest of the day. We were supposed to start at eight. And if I got there at eight, it'd be 830 before the next person showed up. And uh, and so I, we had about 20 employees. And I said, look, Here's the thing. I don't I don't want to cut people's salaries. I don't want to lay people off. I'm taking a 50% cut. Um, but basically, if we're going to save the company, we've got to cut a million dollars in expense, and so we've got to do it in seven days. And I can't figure that out. But if you guys can help figure it out, then we can keep the company running, we can recover, and we won't have to lay anybody off, and uh, we probably won't have to cut anybody's salary. Seven days, they came up with a million dollars in cuts. And it was stuff like, uh, we had rush charges. So if, if you're a client and you're late on getting us the information we need and it costs us more to get the materials to you for the event, you're responsible for that. Our salespeople have decided that that's, that's, that's uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to have to ask them for that. $80,000 a year of extra shipping that we were eating, I mean, and it just went on down the line with that culture of entitlement. It also just caused this escalation everywhere. And, uh, and so part of it is is this idea of, you know, the very people that caused the problem were able to
0: so solve I, the problem. I assume that general manager was gone, however. Oh, yes. <laughs> so you bring up a really interesting point, and that is the culture can go one way, but the people aren't necessarily bad. So if you if you pull out the, the toxic people and you engage the other people on your team, all of a sudden, everybody can be part of that team to help find those solutions. So why do you think so many companies have the tendency when when things are bad, they just make all these cuts and they lay all these people off instead of investing in their people, both with training and like you did with respect that, hey, you guys can be part of the solution. Why do so many companies go the opposite direction?
1: Well, because I, I think that investing in people when times are tough is, is somehow counterintuitive. It's like, Oh no, we've only, we've only got to, we've, we've got to spend money on things that will make money right now. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, you look at it, it's, uh, you know, when somebody is confident and somebody feels they belong and they're part of something and that what they're doing is worthwhile, you know, um, They'll move mountains, but if all you're going to do is beat them with a stick, and and you know, I mean, if I had sat around and blamed them, you guys are the reason we're here. Where we are, you know, you're lazy. You're, you know, that would have been that would have been the end of the company. And and the and the other thing that I found out is that basically the GM was trying to run the company to the ground so that he could then buy it for pennies.
0: Interesting. So one of the things you proved through that then is that community and, and, and contribution are actually going to trump entitlement in the long run. So, but, but what did you have to do to stamp out that culture of entitlement and get people on board? It sounds like you did it in seven days. What did you do?
1: Well, no, I didn't do it in seven days. I just got the million dollars in cuts in seven days. And, and that was motivated by, I want to keep my job and I, and I don't want my salary cut, you know, but beyond that, um, I just said, you know, we've had standards and norms and, and you know, uh, I'm the rainmaker, so I'm gone all the time. I'm not checking on people. Uh, I trusted my general manager to do that, and uh, and so I said, you know, we need to revisit these, and we need to commit that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna follow them. Um, you know, and and I I started with the help me understand why would it be unfair that if I told you I need your numbers by this date in order to have just normal shipping charges, and if you go beyond that, it's going to cost me more, so it's going to cost you, what, what's unfair about that? If somebody doesn't keep their part of the bargain, what's unfair about them having to then pay the consequence for it? You know, because otherwise, you're, you're kind of like a parent who whose you know, kid does something wrong, and you go, I'll take care of it. And then they don't have any consequence and then they don't learn from it. And, and so we basically went through those things and, uh, and, uh, and we started doing a, a, a once a week town hall where we would just go through and say, okay, here's where we are as a company. Um, and we would go around the table and say, what's, what's the number one contribution you made this past week to helping us move forward? And we would we would celebrate those successes. We didn't have a lot of extra money, uh, but I, I believe in uh, reinforcement. But I believe in uh, that reinforcement should flow like a river: random, intermittent, variable reinforcement. So random says unpredictable, intermittent not all the time, variable different, and and it is positively reinforcing. So you know maybe about every third or fourth meeting, uh, you know we'd celebrate by bringing in pizza. You know, and it, and it wasn't much, but now you're sharing a meal together. And, uh, and I made a point of uh, doing a one-on-one once a month with, with everybody. I mean, we're talking about the guy in shipping, um, you know, the receptionist, and just helping them understand that every person's job is important. It's different. You know, the receptionist, you're the first voice that people hear. And they decide everything about the company based on how you sound. Are you know? Are you up? Are you positive? And yet, uh, we probably provide receptionists with least training of anybody in the company. <laughs> so this
0: this investing in people and cherishing the people who work for you shifted the culture of the company. What was the end result?
1: Well, the end of the the, the end result, So in the midst of all this, by the way, um, the financial crisis of two thousand eight hit. And so the interesting thing—I uh, I belong to a group um, um, that's uh, for training and development companies. Um, and uh, so every year we, you know, so we would have an owners' meeting, and they were saying our sales were off fifty percent. I mean, you know, we almost and and I said, well, you know, we didn't grow by much, but we grew ten percent and our. Um, we had the most profitable year we've had in six years and, and I put all of it not to my genius, but to the fact that, that the 20 people we had were really working together and they were also holding one another accountable, you know? So, I mean, not everybody saying became this super disciplined, committed to the culture person, but uh, teammates started calling one another on their stuff. And uh, and I think that made the biggest difference is that uh, we were more than a team; we were a family. Interesting.
0: So along the way, you talked about that one manager you had. You talked about the boss at the company that, that they got sued. You talked about about your first boss, and probably some other times along the way, you, you you hung your hat with some people who screwed you over, and that happens to all of us along the way in business. So how do you deal with the fact that sometimes when you're working for somebody? or you're in business with somebody or just maybe a client or a customer or just a vendor, people screw you over. How do you deal with that and get to the other side?
1: Well, um, you know, I heard you, told you earlier that back in the sixties, I started working with a training program called adventures and attitudes. And I believe that attitude is everything. And uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of like a wedge, a problem comes and, you either let that problem carry you higher, you go up the top side of the wedge by by how you choose to handle it, or you let it bury you deeper. And so, uh, you know, Napoleon Hill said in every adversity is the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. And so it was always, okay, what can I learn from this? You know, what could I do differently? Um, You know, what are my options? And, uh, you know, and let's take action because I, I think that a lot of people just get frozen. You know, I mean, you know, we've heard that old uh, sobriquet, um, the paralysis of analysis. You know, it's. Uh, um, did you know Charlie Jones by any uh, chance? Not
0: personally, but I he he passed away okay. about the time I got into the speaking business twelve years ago. Okay,
1: so I hired Charlie to do some seminars for me back in nineteen seventy two, and so we became lifelong friends and. And uh, he used to say that uh, if you've got a problem or if you want to accomplish something, go to people that have done what you want to do and paid the price you're willing to pay. The the butcher, baker, candlestick maker can't tell you too much about what it takes to succeed in building a business. And so I've always taken advantage of having um, a, a group of trusted advisors. So I never had a formal board of directors, but, People that I could trust that, uh, that had no uh, goal other than helping me do what I do best. And, uh, and I think that a lot of times having positive people who uh, aren't going to let you ignore. I mean, you know, because in each of these cases, I'd be like, oh, I blame the general manager. No, Bob, at the end of the day, it's my fault. Uh, you know, I didn't pay attention. I trusted, but I didn't verify. <laughs> Ronald,
0: um, Ronald Reagan's old line, trust, but verify.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm a big believer in that. And uh, and I think that, that that ends up becoming the key is, is, uh, is what what is your attitude? And uh, we used to use this phrase, which I still use. I can't help the way I feel right now, but I can choose the way I think and act. And so I, I believe that the, uh, you know, the, the use of affirmations, the use of goal setting, um, you know, every every 10 years they change. You know, it was goal setting, now it's vision casting, um, you know, vision boarding that, that kind of thing. But I believe that they're very powerful. And I think that there are a lot of people that they might set a corporate goal, but then they don't break it down into having goals for everybody on, how do you contribute to this big goal? so that every week we can see are uh, each of us doing what we need to do to move the needle in the direction that we want to go? So, Bob Pike, what
0: final piece of advice do you have for people in business who want to be able to weather the storms? You've clearly weathered several of them.
1: Make sure that what you're doing, you're doing out of passion because, because the downs are going to come. But if, but if you're passionate about what you do. You can look at it and you can you can say, you know, I, I believe in me, I believe in this idea. Um, and uh, actually I'll tell you a quick story to illustrate that. Uh, I was trying to market the chambers of commerce, this adventures and analysis program in Colorado. And I went to the first chamber. And they said, have you ever done this with anybody else? And I go, well, you could be the first. And and it turned out that most chamber managers or executive directors were retired military who weren't willing to take any kind of risk. But each time I'd say, look, I I can't show you, but if I could show you another chamber in this area that was doing it, was working for them, would there be any reason why I couldn't work for you? And uh, they'd say, oh, no, you know, because they were kind of letting me off the hook. All right, the guy's on the way out the door. Let's throw him up throw him a bone and so uh, what I ended up doing is the 13th chamber I was five minutes into the presentation guy stopped me and I thought wow I've gotten further than this most of the time and he said we've been looking for something like this for five years and uh, within three weeks I was doing a a weekly segment on the radio station. I was doing a weekly column in the weekly newspaper. The bank manager who was president of the chamber walked me around to every company owner. And we had 85 people enrolled in the course. And and within two months I had five other chambers, you know, now most people would not take 12 numbers, you know, before they'd say this is a bad idea, but I would look at it and I'd say, you no, know, it is a good idea. We do the training after hours; eliminates big costs. You know, I look at it and say, "This is a great idea," and I, I need to explain it better. And you know, then I then I found the key, and I also thought, you know, my competition wouldn't be willing to take twelve doses. And so, just analyze. Make sure you're doing in your mind what the right things. And
0: then go for it. Awesome. Well, Bob Pike, thank you so much for being a guest here on Making Waves at Sea Level. I wrote down a couple of notes I want everybody to think about as we wrap this up. Number one, invest in people. Number two, learn from every situation. Number three, take risks, but include the people around you. He included his team. He included his wife, etc. cetera. Uh, break down the goals and make sure that everybody knows how they're contributing. Work from a place of passion. Show people how you can help them. And then the last one was don't take no for an answer. Keep trying. So thank you so much for shelling, sharing all of those pearls of wisdom. It was a pleasure to have you here.
1: Tom, it was an absolute pleasure. And uh, I just wish you well in all that you're doing because I think you're doing a great job. Ah,
0: well, thank you very much. And thanks to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single episode. If it wasn't for the audience, why would I do this show? And I want to really quick as we wrap it up, thank the other sponsor of this episode. And that is Podfly Production podfly helps you create your own podcast they have been the editor for my show for all 680 plus episodes that we've done over seven years and they are one of the best vendors i have ever worked with podfly sets you up with the right equipment training and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing in creating a podcast check them out at podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show We hope that you're going to tune in for the next episode. We're here twice every single week talking to people like Bob Pike who are shaking things up and making waves in business. In the meantime, though, go out there, flex your business muscles and make sure that your career ladder is against the right wall because you don't want to be slogging through it, climbing that ladder and get to the top. Find out you're in the wrong place. And while you're out there doing all this stuff, have some fun along the way. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger.